Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Claire. Uh, Rich, uh, I appreciate you talking about running, but I just that doesn't really under it just doesn't compute to me that people would go out and willingly run long distances. Um, I I don't know the motivation. I ra- I ran once in my life. Um, and uh, it was to rehab a knee surgery, and I did a triathlon. And my, at first, my goal was to just finish. By the end of the race, my goal was very simply just to survive. I just wanted to end and not, uh, not be hurt in the process. Uh, but I do love the picture uh, of linking arms together and uh, uh, knowing what it is that God, how God works through different people, and through different churches who come together for uh, the same purpose, and that is both to embody the gospel and to take that good news of Jesus out into the world to express and communicate, both in how we live and in what we say, that people are loved by God, loved so deeply by God, and known by Him by name, that uh, they can be embraced if they would turn to Jesus and respond to Him. One of my uh, um, favorite painters is, uh, won't be a surprise, I'm sure he's a favorite to many, is uh, the Dutch master Rembrandt. He was, uh, among other names, he was known as the painter of light and shadow. One of his most famous and well-known paintings is of the prodigal son, painted toward the very end of his life, a life that was uh, interesting to say the least. But you have in the painting... The highlighted there in the light is as if he's painted a spotlight right on this amazing old father figure embracing this ragtag son who's down on his knees and there's this flowing robed embrace of the son. And then around the scene, there is in almost the edge of the spotlight, uh, what must be the, the older brother standing there with his hands crossed in front of him with an interesting expression. I'll let you go and search out the painting and you come to your own conclusions. And then there's two other people very clearly in the background. And then in the far left corner, in the shadows, there's another figure that's almost unseen at first. Henry Nowen, one of my favorite spiritual writers, spent a lot of time being captivated by that painting. He was captivated with the way the father hugged and embraced the son. In fact, he went uh, to uh, St. Petersburg and sat in the Hermitage Museum uh, for days and hours in front of that painting, using it as an opportunity to be guided into some deep reflection about God's love and God's embrace out of that great parable put to paint. He uh, describes how in the various parts of the day, the different light that hit coming through, streaming through the window, how it highlighted different aspects of the painting, different contours of the painting, and how he could begin to see how some were participants and others were observers. A portion of Henry Nowen's ministry was in Toronto at a a place called Daybreak, part of the large communities of Um, It was a community that uh, ministered to those with uh, uh, mental development challenges. And he describes when he first arrived there at daybreak, uh, a woman with Down syndrome named Linda walked up to him. It is so sweet, the picture. Walks right up to him, doesn't know him from anyone, and gives him a big old hug. And she says, 
welcome. He didn't quite know how to respond to that. Um, He had just moved from Harvard. He um, uh, had come and um, he knew that this was a journey God was leading him in. Uh, She didn't know him from anybody. He describes how she neither knew the highlights of his life nor some of the shadowed parts of his being. And yet here she was with this unconditional embrace of welcome. He uh, describes how he had moved from Harvard to Daybreak and it proved to be one little step for him from being a bystander to a participant in God's love, from being a judge to a repentant sinner, from being a teacher about love to being loved as the beloved. Henry Nouwen discovered in those moments, that season of his life, the importance of light. As he sat there in front of the great painting at the Hermitage, he he noticed how the sun revealed the nuances of the painting. As Linda, in Toronto at daybreak, embraced him with a great hug, he saw God working through that hug and began to deepen this journey that he was on. God showing him himself and taking him to a deeper walk with him. Light is an interesting reality. Can you imagine life without light? Can you imagine this room this morning without spotlight shining brightly down on my face? It would be dim and dull. Uh, You've probably been to dark places at uh, late hours of the night where you are thankful for light. Light uh, helps us look a little closer. Anytime you've been to the doctor, uh, especially when you're younger, what's the doctor do when they they look inside your mouth? They uh, always take a a light to help shine into your mouth. They take that funny little instrument and put it in your ear, and part of that instrument has a light to help uh, illumine, to help them look a little closer at uh, what is happening in your body and what is needed uh, to help restore and bring healing. We all need, we all need, God's great light in our lives. And without it, we stumble in darkness. Today, we center our thoughts around a very brief statement that Jesus made when he said, I am the light of the world. And this is really uh, week one, uh, after an introduction last week, of of a new series uh, really examining what did Jesus say about himself How does Jesus himself, through these words, want us to understand who he is? How does he want to be understood? And who did Jesus claim to be? Today we're looking in John chapter 8. I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. And we'll read a few verses down through verse 20. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. 
In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. It will help us to have a little background uh, before we just plunge into uh, these uh, series of verses. Uh, Chapters 7 and 8, Jesus is uh, at one of the great high Jewish festivals of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes referred to as the Feast of Booths. Uh, Many thousands would come and gather in Jerusalem, and they uh, had overwhelmed the city with their presence. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles is a post-harvest festival, uh, usually in September and October. Uh, There are a lot of different activities during Jesus' day uh, of what happened during the festival. It was a week-long festival. It was a time of resting and rejoicing because the harvest is complete. Have you ever worked in in farming? Anyone here ever worked in farming? Uh, Wow. Quite a few of you, about 10 or so out of this group today. I, I had the chance just one summer growing up in Oklahoma. I grew up in a town where uh, we had at one point, uh, we were told, were the largest grain elevators in the whole world. That was quite a claim to fame. Until somewhere in the Soviet Union at that time, back in the early 80s, they built some bigger. Boy, we got really sad. But I grew up in a farming area. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I did have the opportunity to go out and work uh, during some wheat harvests and helping load trucks and watching the combines uh, empty their, their loads into, um, into the bins. I've enjoyed recently reading with my youngest son, Jake, uh, reading the book Farmer Boy, the, one of the early uh, books in the series uh, A Little House in the Prairie, describing uh, Almanzo's life. Almanzo was... Uh, would grow up to become the husband of Laura Ingalls. That's why she becomes named Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's Almanzo Wilder and his life growing up in New York uh, State on, on a farm. And it's just so wonderful. It's like every meal was Thanksgiving. We just, we marveled at how much food they ate. And I tried to explain to Jake uh, how we shouldn't eat that much food because our lives aren't as active uh, and burning as many calories as their, their days did regularly. But the stories in that book about harvesting and protecting the harvest and rejoicing at the very seasons when the harvest was ripe and you would go out and you would gather up the fruit of your hard work, and you praise God because of his provision of, of rain and sun, and, and you harvest all of that, and you bring some of it into the home, and then you take the rest out to uh, support yourself and your family, and you resell it at a great time of rejoicing because the harvest is complete. So, too, this festival in Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles, was an opportunity after the harvest to rejoice, to praise God for his provision yet again. God had been with them and proven himself and provided for them. And it was also a time of feasting. It was a time of a tithing from those crops. In fact, it's interesting in verse 20, Jesus says these words while he's teaching in the temple in a particular area where people were bringing their tithes. They were bringing that which they wanted to give back to God because God had commanded it because they needed to give it. Not because God needed it, but because the people needed to be reminded That it wasn't just out of their great ingenuity or out of the hard work of their hands alone that these provisions were made. 
But it was a constant reminder at these moments to come and offer these tangible things back to God because it has a deep and abiding connection to the depth of our spirit about our understanding of how God provides in our lives. And so here Jesus strategically standing at the place where these offerings were were brought, uh, tithing from the crops was a part of the festival. They would also build temporary shelters that would remind them, these makeshift kind of lean-tos, we might refer to them a little bit, uh, reminders of how God protected them as they wandered. Remember, God brought them out of Egypt, and then they went into a season of wandering through the desert. And uh, these temporary shelters, uh, thousands, uh, many years later, uh, was to remind them about uh, how God had protected them. In the midst of these wandering seasons, each night of the festival, we think each night, but certainly during the festival, these giant golden lampstands would have been illuminated and burned brightly. There would have been festive dancers that came out with torches dancing around through the night, almost as if it were illuminating the whole city. Have you ever sat maybe up here on sort of a semi or some perch in Marin looking into San Francisco, uh, perhaps on a semi-foggy evening, and you can see the light of the city reflecting off of the clouds, and there can just be this glow over the city. I imagine that's what Jerusalem was likely like each night of this week-long festival. And into this festival, Jesus stands up and makes this announcement that I am the light of the world. There's so many other Old Testament connections. The light of the world, the light of God, the light that points us to God's very presence among his people. There was a light, remember, when they were led out of Egypt out of, after 400 years of captivity. They were led out sometimes through the darkness, sometimes in the daylight, but it was always with the sense and an understanding and a clear representation of God's presence among them. At night, there was a pillar of fire that would lead them forth, providing confidence and comfort, knowing that they were going with God and he was leading them ahead. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, Jewish children were taught to sing uh, that God is the light and salvation. Psalm 27.1 is a great example of that. Uh, so understanding God as light was a very clear connection for them. Uh, Psalm 119, we're reminded that the scripture of God is like a lamp to my feet. It's like a flashlight that I put right down in front of me so that I know exactly where I am going with each step that I take. Isaiah informs us that God's servant would be one who would shed light upon the whole world. I'd like to read Isaiah chapter 49 as a reminder of this. Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Bible says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus here is talking about him being the light. He's making a very clear association to being the fulfillment of these realities uh, that pointed to God in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus clearly stands saying, I am this light. I am God in the flesh. 
He's also describing not only that he's light, but he enters into a long conversation with them, one of many he would have over the uh, time, about the legitimacy of who he was and what he was teaching and the things he was claiming and how could he say such things if he uh, were illegitimate. And he, they, people would complain, well, you're just one person. For us to have valid testimony in our culture and understanding, there must be two people who bear testimony. And Jesus points out that he's not the only one who's giving testimony. But because he's so intimately connected with God the Father, that God the Father also is his second witness. He describes the judgment uh, that um, the, the difference between the way he, he evaluates and the way that they judge. Uh, he talks about... There's, uh, for him, judgment is more of an evaluation of life rather than their human judgment. Uh, Certainly there will be a final judgment to come when God sorts out ultimate things. But here Jesus is trying to differentiate a bit, describing that he evaluates differently from the natural human way. The natural human way of the Pharisees, at least, was often to condemn rather than simply evaluate. It was to belittle It was to cut down. It was to slice up. And Jesus says, I've come to make different types of judgment upon a life. You see, God's spirit examines and reveals us just like that doctor's light helps to reveal to that doctor areas that need healing. So the spirit of God comes in like a light and an evaluative tool to examine our lives. I loved what Ray Fox shared last week when he was... Uh, giving his testimony is it was just kind of an off offhand comment but he said after he he came to faith in Christ Jesus since that day there have been many moments in his life where God has done spiritual surgery in him where God has come and pointed and touched areas of his life that he wanted to transform and to renew and to redeem and to make right you see Jesus moves us from being bystanders of God's grace and becoming instead participants in it. God moves us from being judge of others to being repentant sinner. God moves us to being those from being those who talk about love to being those who are loved as God's great beloved. Jesus says, if you knew me, you would also know my father. Remember the question, we'll probably come back to it regularly through this series. Jesus, in Matthew 16, um, is one reference, goes to the disciples, and remember he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they offer various responses, and then he turns directly to them, and he asks a very pointed question, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's great response is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Stevens mentioned this week and Chris too that we've had two memorial services, one on Thursday for Madeline Pitts, one yesterday for Bob Bickenbach. One of the, one of the many things, uh, both services were wonderful celebrations of their lives. They were wonderful uh, opportunities to remember the gift of these lives to so many in this fellowship. They were wonderful reminders of what God does in bringing about new life and reminders about the great promise that we have in Jesus to enter into forever living with him in his very presence. Uh, 
Don Dent was sharing about uh, Bob and some of his later days as he struggled, often in pain in the hospital. Um, and Don was asking once how he was doing, not just physically, but how his heart was doing. And Bob's response, he knew what he was asking. And Bob's response was a very strong and clear, oh, Don, I believe. I believe. Madeline Pitts, her, her life and testimony was shared. Uh, part of it was inserted as, as a, a bulletin insert. In fact, I've made several copies if uh, you would like to get one. I was so blessed by this. It's a two-page insert, and I, I think it barely scratches the surface for uh, Madeline's life. But I was so blessed with the way that um, the word that continued to come up about her was one of elegance and grace. Uh, she was one of generosity. I asked the the uh, people present uh, how many who actually owned necklaces that Madeline had handmade for them, and about half of the group raised their hand, many of them wearing them, and they were holding them up. It was a really, really touching moment and a reminder of how generous Madeline was. And uh, If you read the story, you'll see uh, how in the face of of great oppression and a discouragement, how she responded to that the way Jesus teaches us to respond to our enemies with love, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And how at different points of her life, people who tried to overwhelm her, uh, she actually befriended and they became people who respected and honored her with her life. So we uh, celebrated these two lives this past week and uh, rejoiced in the gift that God gave us in them. But both Bob and Madeline are examples of two very clear answers to the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Are you leaning toward the light of Jesus? Are you walking with him throughout your daily living? In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 17, hear what the Apostle Paul says. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You see, Jesus not only states that he is the light, but we as his followers also are to walk in his light, faithfully trusting as he would lead us through our lives. Father, that is our prayer today, that we would know you as the light of the world, a light that goes out to every culture and people, a message of hope, and forgiveness and relationship with you that you have made available through Jesus.
We thank you for the opportunity to partner with missionaries through the International Mission Board and through the North American Mission Board and seeing church planters go out into various places around North America, into places where there's little gospel witness, where very few have the opportunity to hear and respond to the good news, the great news that they are loved by God so deeply that Jesus would come and to seek them out. So we pray for our North American Mission Board, brothers and sisters. We pray for that organization, that you would strengthen it, and that you would fund every aspect of their need for your ministry to go forth. We pray this day that we would be the way the Apostle Paul describes what we should be, as children of light, no longer dabbling in the deeds of darkness, but walking in the fullness of the light that you have given and that you provide each and every day. May we look to you, O light of the world. Illumine our lives this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.